How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Welcome back to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Today on the show, we have Greg Berman. After graduating from Princeton, Greg uh, worked as an analyst at Goldman Sachs paid his dues and left to write to write two books, one on American domestic policy, how the U.S. slept through the global AIDS pandemic, and another one on uh, foreign policy, uh, how the Marshall Plan saved Europe. Uh, Greg joined the State Department after writing those books, helping to advance American relations in the Muslim world, and then went to Afghanistan as a strategic advisor to General Petraeus, inspired to affect society and tell the stories of those who are doing good in our community and our, and our world. Greg started Nationswell, a burgeoning platform with which embraces traditional media, reporting on the unheralded and impactful local heroes, like those who, here's a recent article, how running got 6,000 homeless people on their feet. More so, uh, Greg is cultivating a community of socially-minded leaders through Nationswell Council, including Howard Schultz of Starbucks fame and Charles Best of Donor Ernst Hughes, and more, uh, to share best practices and inspire others to commit to the common good. Nationswell creates documentaries that awards its $10,000 All-Star Prize and more. Um, let's learn about Greg's path and, and about Nationswell in a moment, but first, who are you even listening to? Um, if you're a, if you're a regular listener to the show, uh, you know my voice. I am uh, Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Group, and I'm a volunteer podcaster and entrepreneurial board member, uh, with Venture for America, VFA, um, the VFA uh, fellowship is a it's a program which attracts enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help to revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. And I should note that earlier this month, Venture for America announced the launch of its new executive and residence program. The program brings top executives from key tech companies like Slack, LinkedIn, and Yelp, among others, to VFA cities for a year-long residency to serve as resources to the innovation and entrepreneurial communities. Leslie Miley, former head of engineering at Slack, is the first EIR and will launch and lead the program. For more information, go to ventureforamerica.org slash EIR apply. It sounds like the type of thing that... uh, uh, Greg Berman might cover at Nationswell, um, an individual giving of himself to uh, the betterment of a um, of the uh, of a local community. Um, if you enjoy our show, please tell someone, uh, tell a friend, um, you know, tell a colleague, tell anyone, because we uh, can benefit and bring more content uh, to our growing audience. If you uh, are enjoying the show, like us on iTunes. Um, if you want to connect, uh, I've now interviewed over, I'm getting, we're getting very close to 90 entrepreneurs, uh, so some entrepreneurial experience listening my, on my own, listening to others. You can connect with me through LinkedIn. I accept, warmly accept friends. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald. But enough about me. Let's get to our interview with Greg Berman. 
Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, I have uh, known about VFA for years, have followed it, a huge admirer and believer in the organization, the mission, uh, and the need for it right now. Thanks so much for your, for your kind words. I will pass that on to our mutual friend, Andrew Yang. Great. Uh, so let's let's talk about your um, your entrepreneurial path, um, the path that brought you to Nations Well. Um, you started your career with a, a coveted analyst role at Goldman. Were you, were you At that point in your life, when you graduated from Princeton and joined Goldman Sachs, were you thinking, hey, I'm going to be here and be a partner for life, you know, stay here for life and be a partner? Or were you imagining, I'll put, pay my dues and, and, and get out of here? I, 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 it was the former. Um, I, was, I saw a pretty long path there. Um, I had a good two-year experience, great institution, great colleagues, grew a lot as a professional during a formative period, um, and you know, envisioned that I would probably spend decades there um, and uh, would maybe get to um, engage in some of the policy and impact work that I was really passionate about later in life. Um, but I ended up going to, to grad school at Oxford to do international relations, and a range of things happened when I was there, but that sort of set me on a different course. So... You know, you, I, I, you wrote this book next, like how the U.S. slept through the global AIDS pandemic, and you wrote this in your mid twenties. How does a guy find himself writing a book that specific? Uh, you know, in uh, you know, policy book uh, with the background you had. It was totally organic. Uh, it was not planned, uh, and it came from a place of, I guess, heritage and passion. Uh, my family is originally from South Africa. Um, kind of a big part of my upbringing. Uh, we would spend a lot of time there growing up. I felt a connection to that country and that continent. Uh, so when I was at grad school, I started reading, and this was um, you know, 2000, 2001, pre-PEPFAR, which was uh, President George W. Bush's big comprehensive program. When I started reading about uh, what was going on back then, um, and uh, it was a time in which the U.S. had not really kind of woken up to the threat in all of its global dimensions, um, it struck a really powerful chord. And um, I knew that having sort of read about the magnitude of the challenge and how people were struggling in South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere in the world, um, that um, that I had to kind of take it up and do a little bit more. And so I spent a couple of years, uh, took a swing at writing uh, a book about it. I had not so much as published an article in the school newspaper. I had uh, no idea what publishing a book meant. But, you know, it came from a real place of passion and conviction. And if publishing this thing meant um, I was going to go to Kinkos and staple together 50 copies and give it, uh, pass it down the street corner, um, I was in. I was going to do it. And, you know, in that way, um, it it was certainly kind of a, uh, you know, a bit of an academic exercise and and, uh, um, was a writer. But there was probably also an element of uh, being an entrepreneur. Um, given that uh, you know I wasn't well schooled in uh, in writing books back then, I mean, were you hooked on writing that book? Because you wrote another one, how the Marshall Plan saved Europe. Uh, next, uh, you know, was was it just like, look, I I love this process and I'll keep going, or was there? I a specific- did. I mean, it's it's an incredibly uh, gratifying um, process. It's it's indulgent in some ways because you get to identify a topic that you're passionate about and you're curious about. And you get to spend, you know, a good amount of time diving deep and really trying to probe and 
understand that issue in all of its dimensionality. Um, And then you have a chance to sort of tell the story um, as you see it in your voice. Um, And the book then becomes a platform for you to share that with other people and to to speak uh, out on a topic that you care about. It gives you a voice. And so um, I had a really gratifying experience with the first book. Um, I'm not sure it was my most sort of fully realized um, uh, uh, work as a writer. Um, it was young and green, um, but um, was proud of it. Uh, and wh- the thing that happened when you're working on uh, an issue like AIDS or global health or poverty or Africa is you hear, um, we need a Marshall Plan for that. And people seem to be speaking about the Marshall Plan as this, they'd sort of equate it with a big, uh, ambitious, effective uh, program to solve a problem. And, um, and so, you know, that it always sort of uh, stuck with me. And I, I sort of wondered, well, boy, if um, this is how we solve our problems, um, uh, there could be something there. Um, so let, let me learn more. Um, let me really understand um, if this program was as effective as people seem to think it is. And if it is, um, presumably there, so there's some powerful lessons there. And so you mentioned that. I mean, the timing seemed to be right when you're writing this book about the Marshall Plan. And the U.S. is starting to withdraw troops from, um, you know, from Iraq at that time. Was that just pure coincidence, or was this supposed to be like a, a bit of a how-to, a lesson for how to rebuild that part of the world? You know, it was that was a challenging period. You know, I wrote the book from '04 um, to '06, published I think in '07. Um, and those were very, very difficult years uh, in our engagement in Iraq, um, in our global engagement writ large. Um, America's standing in the world had fallen um, uh, after you know what seemed to be um, a successful invasion of the country. Um, we mismanaged the, the occupation very badly. Um, it was you know that was sort of the the archetype of how not uh, to design. Uh, execute, um, you know, a big a governmental undertaking or program, and the Marshall Plan was sort of the counterpoint. Um, and so, I think those things were partly in my mind, um, but um, but not the, the 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 total driver. I think they provided some context, um, uh, but more generally, I was I was just very interested in a time when we really got it right, when we seemed to be at our best as a country, where we seemed to be able to do big things. Um, uh, with uh, with uh, total uh, effectiveness um, to design them in the right way, to execute them in the right way, to have the right people involved, and to drive effective outcomes. Um, and what happened was the book did uh, come out uh, at a time in which it was you know very very clear that um, the occupation uh, was a failure. Um, President Bush had said that um, our uh, post invasion occupation would be. Uh, we, we'd undertake the biggest reconstruction effort since the Marshall Plan. Um, the the outcomes uh, were very very different, and so I would even though I didn't write the book with that specifically in mind, um, when I wrote it, um, people were interested in um, somewhat interested in post World War II mm-hmm. history. They were very interested in how those lessons related uh, to what we were then uh, undergoing in Iraq and the broader Middle East. Where does where does this passion for policy come from? You know, were you just one of these people who was you know sitting around a, a healthy dinner time conversation every night talking about global affairs? Like, you're, there's so much. I mean, you said even at Goldman you were thinking about policy. Yeah, you know, I suppose it's probably um, you know uh, goes back to to my parents. 
Um, they uh, were foreigners. They were from South Africa. Um, my late father's dream was to move to America and to start a business and to raise his family there. Um, and so I was the first uh, to be born in America and my family. And, um, and I think I always just had sort of an appreciation um, for um, being able to grow up here and live my life here and now raise my own, own family here and kind of a fascination with uh, our country, its history and the way it works. And, um, and you know, I always thought uh, growing up, if I had a chance to um, engage in, uh, in public policy, engage in service in some shape or form, um, that'd be very exciting. So you completed a fellowship at Harvard, um, joined the State Department. You were advising on uh, on initiatives and strategy to advance American relations with the Muslim world. Um, you know, are, are, we're in the middle of this. It's not a Muslim ban, Muslim ban. What advice would you be giving as, as someone who who once was dispensing advice at, the high, at high levels? What what advice would you be giving to the president right now? I would say that uh, our country does not uh, discriminate. Um, based on um, race or religion. Um, our country is an open place. It's a welcoming place. Um, those are um, sources of great strength that have served us very, very well uh, for decades, for centuries. Um, those are uh, central to our identity, um, our sense of who we are as Americans. Um, and I think those are really important things uh, to consider. From a national security perspective, um, I would say that there are countries out there where there is instability, there is radicalism, there are threats, they're real, they're dangerous. Um, there's a um, sacred responsibility uh, to safeguard um, our citizens and our country from those threats. Um, if people have ideas for um, how to vet people uh, who are coming from those places as they move in and out of borders, um, that would make us more safe. Um, but, but. Uh, but would not be discriminatory or, or unethical, um, by all means, raise them, bring them up, um, let's strengthen those processes. Um, but, uh, but we, by being discriminatory, um, uh, we actually, I, I would argue, um, uh, make ourselves more vulnerable. And ultimately, um, those policies would, uh, would prove more dangerous than safe. So you became an advisor to to, to, um, to General Petraeus in Afghanistan. I'm assuming there's no job posting on that one. I'm assuming you. <laughs> how, how do you find that job? That was not on a job board. Yeah, it was not on Monster.com. It was not. Uh, uh, so I did. I was working at the State Department at the time. I was an officer in the Navy Reserves. Uh, I joined um, to, um, to deploy um, and to go overseas. Um, it was about that time. And so I was thinking about um, in what capacity I would do it. And uh, working in DC at the State Department, um, had a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues um, in policy, uh, friends who were veterans who um, had served in a similar role, knew of some people who had um, you know, served in that capacity who I admired a lot. Uh, and it seemed like a good fit um, for my experience and skill set. Um, seemed like a, a wonderful way to serve, wonderful way to learn. Uh, from exceptional uh, people, leaders. And so I was connected um, over uh, to General Petraeus via some of the people I was working with. Um, there was an opening. Um, I got the green light. Took months to get all the clearances and all the, uh, uh, to go through all the hurdles involved. Um, and I uh, was able to deploy in that capacity. Um, and then was with General Petraeus for uh, a fairly short time because he was tapped to go back to run the CIA 
and um, uh, stayed on with General Allen, his successor, uh, for um, for most of my year there. And you're you're about you're in your early thirties this time, um, you know, early thirties en- enlisting. Um, you know, you're. We talked a little bit about this before the show, but you, you know, you're you 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 meet your now wife, um, and you're voluntarily, you know, taking a post in Afghanistan. I mean, can you discuss the decision making process and the, um, you know, were, were, was your when you enlisted, was your family just like, what, you know, <laughs> please don't, or were they like, no, this was our dream to, to you know, to. We love this country, and we're behind you. Well, this probably would not have been my mom's first uh, <laughs> choice. It probably would have, would have been pretty difficult if, uh, you know, the day before I deployed, I kind of sprung it on my wife, and I said, honey, guess what? Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I, the best thing in the world that's ever happened to me was uh, meeting my wife, and we met um, uh, in 08, uh, uh, in December of, of in we met in, let's see, we met in December of 08, went on our first date in January of 09, and I was already in the process of commissioning it, so it's something that we probably even talked about on our first date. Um, and uh, and even as we dated and got married, she knew that it was something that was in the cards for me. And um, like uh, pretty much all um, the, the good decisions I've made, um, they, they came from her, they came from my wife, whose name is Caitlin. And so uh, we were sort of faced with the decision, hey, is this something that we do um, uh, before we start a family or after? I said, um, uh, I wasn't sure it mattered. She said, it matters, <laughs> go do it before we start a family. As we now have a family, that proved to be a good decision. But um, you know, what, you know, part of what inspired me to get involved in the, in the, in the first place um, was you know, by, by the time I was pursuing a commission, there were people who were my peers who were already on their second, third, fourth deployments. And it's just, you know, it, it, I still marvel at what um, uh, you know, people in my generation um, uh, have done um, for the, over the past um, you know, 14, 15 years uh, in these two wars. Uh, and so um, you know, I deployed for one year. It was um, a comparatively modest uh, uh, um, a commitment uh, in relation to what all those folks have done. Uh, and so we um, uh, got through it, and um, uh, my wife actually was a nurse, uh, volunteered uh, to go and serve uh, in Africa to do hospice care uh, for the first six months of oh, the wow. deployment. And so we were both kind of overseas doing things that we um, had a lot of conviction around, um, and um, were pleased to, to settle back in Connecticut when it was over. Were you able to, I'm assuming you were able to go visit her in Africa during the time off that you would normally be spending in the, in the States at that time? Uh, we had two weeks of R&R, and we chose um, uh, uh, a nice, restful, tropical place. And those were, <laughs> those were two good weeks. The, the hardest day in the whole thing was the, the day I got back from that. Right. Wow. Um, so speaking of getting back, so you, you came back you know, after your time in Afghanistan. Um, you know, a little less than a, a year later, you know, Nations Well is starting. I mean, was this something you had, you had long had the idea for? Or was it something that you know you came back and were kind of you know decompressing and just kind of thought about when you were home? Got back and um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about next steps uh, when I was over there. Um, got back, wasn't sure what next. Um, I got excited about the idea of doing something entrepreneurial, building something purposeful. I'd never been an entrepreneur before. Um, it was really appealing and exciting. And, um, and I wasn't sure what next. I knew I wanted it to be something um, purposeful. I knew I wanted it to be connected to national service, as that's my passion. Beyond that, I wasn't exactly sure. 
Um, so I did take uh, a little bit of time to explore, to talk to people. As I was doing that, I was experiencing a lot of media and was finding myself getting um, you know, a little frustrated with what I think um, frustrates a fair amount of people about media, the tendency to, um, to focus on the negative, the problems, the challenges, um, the kind of one side yelling at the other side. Um, and so um, what I found myself searching for in the course of that exploration was a platform where you could sort of push past the noise and the negativity and actually learn about the problem solvers who are on the cutting edge of, of engaging all these challenges with the most creative, effective solutions, the people who are moving us forward as a country. I wanted to learn about them, I wanted to know their story, and I wanted to you know, get behind what they were doing. These are you know, people like Andrew and, and organizations like VFA. Um, and it, it, uh, I knew that it was exceedingly important that we all understand the challenges before us, and um, journalism and media serves that function extremely well. But um, I had the sense that um, we were kind of doing short shrift to the actual solutions, which, are, which is also a pretty important part of it. And, um, and so as I began to think more about that, reflect more about that, it became increasingly clear that that's what we'll build. It's interesting. You're, you're a guy who um, you know, was willing to make a sacrifice in your 30s. Um, you're coming back. You're trying to you know, push people to be more um, you know, uh, thoughtful about policy, more engaged in, in in society. I mean, do you have any any thoughts on why our generation seems less engaged? I mean, I, you know, than than past generations and less inclined to serve the country. You know, I think about um, the hundreds of thousands, millions, I guess, cumulatively of uh, of people um, who uh, military service members who served and sa and sacrificed so much. Um, in these last, you know, 15 years or so, um, think about um, the um, the tens of thousands who sign up for AmeriCorps, um, the Peace Corps, TFA, those sort of programs, and there are hundreds of thousands more a year who would do those programs, but there isn't the capacity to support them. Uh, you know, people who are engaged in not-for-profit work. I think, you know, I'm not convinced that um, uh, that's that's true of of our generation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a wellspring uh, of interest, of willingness uh, to serve and to engage. Um, I think in some ways our generation is even more service-minded. And you know, we look to companies and to, to brands, to products, to services, to mm. reflect our values around sustainability and social good um, and ethical conduct. Um, and uh, you know, I know there are um, you know, some people who are probably not as engaged or um, involved uh, as they should be, but um, you know, I'm fortunate to, to see the great side of that, and I see an abundance of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, I think there are all sorts of additional opportunities to probably tap into that. I think we're, it's an, there's an uh, you know, underutilized wellspring of willingness uh, to serve and to engage, and part of what um, uh, you know, political leaders could do um, is, to, is to more fully utilize that and harness that to good. I guess that's where Nation Spell came from, that belief that, <laughs> that you have, that, that there is this wellspring of willingness out there. So let's, let's talk about this. Um, you know, it, you, I'm curious, you, know, you, you, you built the site, um, you know, which again, just to clarify, just you know, to, to help grassroots innovators tell their stories and, and more. You know, it's, it's a whole platform for other forms of engagement to be announced, Nation Swell Council, et cetera. Um, but um, you, know, you built it with using a, using a for-profit model. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you gave any consideration to, you know, 
non not for profit or you know was there anything in particular you could achieve with a for profit approach that you might not with a non profit approach? We could have gone either way with the idea, and we thought long and hard about um, the model and the path in the early days. Determined that we'd be a for purpose for profit um, company, um, and the logic was that you know we really wanted to create something that was scalable, that was sustainable. We wanted to create something that was lasting. Um, we wanted to attract uh, fantastic talent, fantastic team members, um, giving them, uh, uh, some of those folks, the ability to participate um, in, uh, in a growing for-profit enterprise um, was a facet to the, uh, the decision. Um, in the early days, I sometimes wondered, you know, was it the best way? Wasn't it the best way? I can say unequivocally, um, you know, three, three plus years in, um, that it was the right course for us. And, um, and we see a lot of fellow travelers, you know, it's the sort of B, the B Corps of the world um, and, uh, and more and more, I think, um, you know, people are moving forward with for-profit, double bottom line um, operations. A lot of these are the um, uh, organizations or companies that VFA works with. Mm -hmm. um, and we are, you know, we have a laser-like focus around our, our mission, which focuses on social impact. Um, our mission is to power the solutions and innovations that will move us forward. Um, we, uh, it's our sort of North Star, it's what guides us uh, and what governs us um, as a for-profit business. Um, and, uh, and I think, it, you know, to date it served us really well. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. You raised about $2 million to start. Was this like, for your investors, was this a, a typical VC investment or were, were they you know, measuring the social impact that they expected in, in, in NationSwell? We um, brought on exclusively um, double bottom line investors, people who believed um, that we could create um, a company of value um, and people who um, believed in the social returns that we could drive, in the need for the platform uh, and its place um, you know, in the media landscape and in our country. Um, and I think that um, that alignment was really, really important. We determined that uh, we were not gonna seek investment participation from institutional um, venture capitalists and investors. Um, uh, those uh, folks can bring great things to um, young, growing, ambitious enterprises, organizations. But because of um, the, uh, the strong focus on social return, on impact, on mission, we thought we'd be best served um, with double bottom line angels and, um, and, and be fully aligned. And that has served us really well. And, I, and I'd, you know, I'd pass that along to um, other fellow entrepreneurs um, who um, are starting um, similar organizations. I think um, I, I hear stories where there's misalignment um, uh, that can present friction and problems. And we were, we were lucky in, um, in finding a great group of investors who believed in what we do and the way we were thinking about it. Um, and that's also served us well. So when you started, like you're, you're, you're following these amazing leaders in our society, and and I, you know, I read some of the articles, and you know, what I was amazed by was the response. I'm assuming you expected response to these articles, but when we were expecting people to commit to the organization themselves beyond liking and comments, and, and were you expecting people to 
donate and join organizations? Was that the intent from the beginning? Yeah, so on the, you know, we're, we have three platforms. We have um, a digital media platform, uh, this wonderful membership community of service-minded uh, leaders in the Nations Fellow Council, and then we have an impact studio where we work with mission-aligned companies, foundations, and not-for-profits uh, to amplify and support their social impact efforts. And so on the media side, um, our hope was to find the people who were rolling up their sleeves and solving the biggest challenges before us in communities, communities, cities, and states around our country. We wanted to be a platform to elevate their work, propel it forward. A big, a big way that we do that is by um, hopefully doing justice to their story and telling it in a compelling human way um, so that people can get exposure to what they're doing, can be informed and inspired um, by that work. Um, and ideally, um, in, engage, act, uh, get behind it. Um, the interesting thing is that um, uh, you know that 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 uh, that happens quite a lot. Um, we uh, we're not able to fully anticipate how people act or mm -hmm. engage. Sometimes you think, boy, you know that story's out there. I, I bet people will donate to that organization. Uh, when in fact, um, there's little uptake around donation. But what may happen is people in other communities reach back to that organization and say, hey. We really need that in our community. How do we bring that here? Um, and so, uh, and so, it's really through scaling uh, and expansion um, mm -hmm. that uh, that that the impact uh, manifests itself. Um, vice versa, maybe we think something will scale, but actually they're flooded with with contributions or donations. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that doesn't always happen. To be sure, um, uh, it happens most often when a story really resonates and achieves a lot of reach and a measure of virality. Um, but um, but that's that's obviously the sweet spot and very gratifying. And the neat thing is that in a couple of years in, um, there a range of those kind of stories. Can, can you share a, a favorite or two with us of, of uh, you know of, of, of not only of, of maybe one of impact and one of unexpected in, impact? Sure. So we did a great uh, story about uh, Eli Williamson and Leave No Veteran Behind. Um, really creative, effective program based out of Chicago, where they mobilize veterans. Um, to uh, kind of deploy them on street corners in tough neighborhoods in Chicago um, to help sort of um, provide safe passage for young kids to and from school. And they call them sir and ma'am, look them in the eye. Um, and um, they've been effective um, in not only sort of um, as a transition platform for veterans coming out of the military um, and getting some funds to set them on a, you know, a path of success in their uh, civilian life, um, but also in reducing incidents of violence in some of these challenging communities mm. and making communities and school safer for kids. So we um, you know, are privileged to tell Eli's story. Um, it was one of those that really kind of went viral, I think something like you know, 15 or 20 million views. Wow. Um, uh, led to all sorts of communities reaching out to Eli, all sorts of, I think, funding opportunities, speaking opportunities, further media pickup, picked up by NPR. Um, and um, also got the attention of the uh, mayor, uh, Emmanuel, um, and has gotten um, you know, the city uh, further engaged in Ooh. their work. So, of course, um, it's all about Eli and the work that they're doing. And uh, all those things, you know, very well would happen without our engagement. Um, but, um, you know, our hope is that telling the story and um, uh, driving some reach and awareness around what they were doing um, also, you know, got some, some additional folks engaged um, uh, behind their work, maybe one one that you didn't expect would would become so impactful. Is that uh, 
Is there another one that springs to mind? So there's one that was a little uh, uh, different, a story that we told was a little different. Um, we had a really talented uh, video storyteller who found a woman who in her own home is con was con uh, collecting female products uh, for uh, f uh, homeless females. Uh, so bras, uh, you know, you name it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and was, um, people were sending in uh, these, uh, these items and she was giving it to, to women who, who really needed them and uh, made a big difference in their life. Um, so proud to tell that story. Um, probably wasn't the, the first story I would notice, mm. um, but we had a great uh, pr uh, video producer who picked it up and that you know, performed really well as well. And, um, and all sorts of pickup and all sorts of people uh, wanting to expand that work in their communities. People just actually um, just doing it. Just, just right. you know, women just reaching out to their um, their own circles, their own friends, uh, relationships, and and uh, and just you know acting as individuals. Um, and there was um, you know she reported back that you know she couldn't she was flooded with donations oh, well. or contributions, and she reported back all these sort of neat stories uh, of people throughout the country just sort of um, following suit. And so that was um, that was one that was unexpected, but uh, but rewarding nonetheless. So, I mean, does the author and you want to grab the keyboard and start typing the typing the story sometimes, or are you uh, are you sticking with managing the <laughs> the organization exclusively all the time? Yeah, but uh, but but no time, and we're in you know great and better hands with uh, with my teammates. <laughs> and some, there's a finite number of stories out there, but like they're they're the easy story to, 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 to cover is the story that's, you know, on the front pages every day. Like, these are these are hard stories to find. Like, I mean, are, are, do you worry about running out of content? Not, not in that, that good stories will disappear, but just that they're hard to uncover. When we started Nation Swell, we were asked by um, quite a few people uh, when we shared the concept, um, well, is, is there enough out there? Are there enough good stories? Are there enough, and not just good stories, but stories about people solving problems, not just ideas to solve problems, but ideas in operation that were, that, were, that, that were having an impact, that were creative, that were different, that were effective. Are there enough of those um, initiatives, people, stories um, to fully populate a, a platform? And um, we believe there were, um, but we couldn't verify that when they asked that question. So you know, we shared our kind of, you know, our theory on it uh, and said, you know, ultimately we'll see. And so I think the good news is that um, a couple years in, um, there are more stories, more examples of creative solutions in you know the vast array of communities that are out there in our country than we could ever cover, um, and uh, and that's um, that's good news for our platform, and that's you know better news for um, for the vitality of our country. So the, the platform you, you launched um, Nation Swell Council to discuss the challenges facing society. Um, you have some pretty impressive names: Howard Schultz of Starbucks, Charles Best of Donors Choose, Michelle Ree, uh, super, former superintendent of uh, DC Public Schools, and more. Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. There you go. <laughs> Venture Yang. for America. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, how do you how do you start something like something from scratch, from, like something like that from scratch, and get people? Howard Schultz, who is really engaged in social issues. I mean, you just pick up the phone and say, "Come on, Howard, do another." I mean, I, I, you know, how does how does it work? How do you get well? Some of the, we, it off the ground. We've been really privileged to sort of consider you know those people and many many more in our you know broader community. Um, some of the folks you mentioned are um, like Andrew and Charles, and some others are 
you know, uh, official kind of members of the nation's fall council um, and others like Howard and, uh, you know, a range of other people have been kind to come in, um, you know, be speakers and share a bit more about, you know, their, their vision, their passion, um, how they uh, view the world um, with, with the community. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think there are a couple things. I think that people, um, you know, people appreciate our mission. Um, it's, um, you know, it's a deeply authentic one. Um, we, we don't just kind of believe it, we feel it in our bones and um, we, we, we try hard um, to, um, to give expression to that in everything that we do from our storytelling to um, our, um, the experiences we provide at the council, the conversations that we have, the work we do with our partners. And I think that, um, you know, my, my guess is that, um, you know, people like uh, Howard Schultz and others, um, you know, appreciate that and want to be supportive of it uh, and want to lend their stature um, and, and time um, to, to a platform like that. Um, I, I think probably another part is that, um, you know, the neat thing is that our, our media platform has, has grown by leaps and bounds since its um, founding. And we now reach about 15 million people per month with our content. Um, we uh, uh, drove around 400 million impressions uh, across uh, our channels last year. Um, the council community has achieved a measure of scale and they're just wonderful, you know, accomplished, um, service-minded people engaged in that. And so, um, you know, when, when folks who are doing, uh, who believe in social impact, uh, who um, believe in purpose and uh, are doing um, great and important work, um, you know, it's a neat, the community is a good group for them to engage. Um, and so uh, I suppose those are probably some of the reasons why we've been, you know, really fortunate to, uh, to be able to welcome some good folks. You mentioned the 15 million reader, uh, the, the 15 million readers, is that, is that what you just said? Yeah, 15, 15 million, million uh, a month will uh, will kind of experience the content in written form and video form and other and, form. And this is being, this is being the, produced by a staff of 15 people? It's is that right? we're we're a team all in today of just over twenty. Just over twenty, and uh, and they're they are a mighty group and and uh, work hard and we punch above our weight and <laughs> I'm sure you know all the entrepreneurs at VFA uh, will tell you that's what you have to do, uh, you know, to make it all work. Um, but uh, but you bet you know our editorial team uh, produces a lot um, of really high quality content, um, um, and uh, and we've been able to. Uh, you know, to um, get some engagement around it. How, how many how many people are on the editorial team? So all in, uh, we have about uh, seven full-time folks. It's amazing that we're using that amount of content that's having that kind of reach. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing is it doesn't, um, if if the content is compelling enough, um, it's, it's it, there needs to be a, a good measure of volume around it, but it's not, you know, our, what right. we've learned is that um, it's not um, simply kind of a volume um, uh, issue. Um, and so we, uh, we don't produce or generate um, a comparable amount of volume to a lot of you know, well-known mm -hmm. platforms. Um, we, um, we take a, you know, a greater measure of care in telling great stories, finding the right subjects, framing them in the right way, pushing them out on channels in the right way. Um, and and you know not all not every story um, you know has a viral pop or reaches um, millions and millions of people. But mm -hmm. um, but if we do if we tell the stories in the right way and push them out in the right way, um, you know the, the good news is that, is that to date um, 
we have been able to drive that kind of reach. So like in, in a mission-driven company like that, it's, 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 you sometimes forget, like, you're still running a business. Like, like what are the things that are, you know, what are, the, what, are the, what are the pain points for you? What are the things that are keeping you up at night? Well, the nice news um, these days is that we're a growing enterprise, and so we're actively hiring for a range of roles. Um, it's great for all sorts of reasons to be um, on the hiring side of things. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, for us, it's really kind of managing our growth and, and finding um, the right people for the right roles um, at, at the right pace, um, onboarding them, plugging them in, and, and to sort of keep driving. And so, um, so we're, you know, there's a fair amount of attention right now on, um, on, you know, identifying the right folks and building the team and making sure that we do that in a way that we can take advantage of some of the neat opportunities in front of us. And so we've talked about some of the opportunities. You know, we've got the documentaries, the All Star Prize, um, you know, the Nations Well Council. Are you are you focusing on on, on I'm putting this quote like only? That sounds like a pretty full plate, but only these initiatives right now, or uh, or you can, can you tip us off to any uh, any anything exciting that's going to be happening in the future? We're always thinking about what's next, and um, and so one of the things uh, that's next is something that we um, we think of as our, our next level campaign. And that's where we'll identify a solution or initiative uh, or organization that we really believe in, something we have a lot of conviction around, and we'll go really deep on it. So we'll try to get a sense for, um, you know, the vision, the mission. Uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll be we'll go um, we'll get really immersive with that partner, have a sense of what they're doing, their calendar, their um, the, the range of activity um, that they have in support of their objectives. And we'll try to align with that and activate um, the range of things that we can do, um, you know, high quality storytelling, um, digital distribution, uh, events, experiences, um, you know, engaging uh, in a really kind of thoughtful, curated way, um, some of the experts um, and, and leaders that, that are participate in the council um, to really help to move the needle. Uh, for that partner. And so we launched our first next level campaign uh, at our summit in November. Uh, I think Andrew was there. I'm almost, I, in fact, he was there for it. So um, uh, it's good to have him there for it. And, uh, and so we launched it with, uh, with the Service Year Alliance. And they're um, a, a wonderful organization um, that we, we really believe in. And so what they're trying to do is to uh, mobilize um, uh, eventually up to a million young adults around the idea of um, one year hmm. of voluntary civilian national service. So the vision is that young adults from West Virginia, LA, Chicago, Des Moines, um, all come together, live together, work together um, in support of communities around the country. And when you think about the division, um, the sort of seeming inability of people who live in different places or think different things to even be able to talk to, to, to each other. You think about that and then you think about the idea of at a formative time in these people's lives, them actually coming together and spending time and being in proximity and learning about each other um, and working together and serving together. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's the totality of the answer to what um, some of our problems, but you know, I, I really believe that that's a part of it. And so, you know, we have a lot, you can tell I probably have a lot of conviction around <laughs> their work and what they're doing. And so we, we have, we're going deep with them and, uh, and trying to, um, we'll do our best over the course of a year through video storytelling and a range of, you know, uh, curated events to drive uh, energy and awareness behind this idea. 
And our hope is that over the course of a year, you know, we're able to, to be value-added partners and to move the needle for them. And we, um, we think it's a great way to deploy the range of things that we do um, and, and the, um, the things that we've learned from being immersed in the social impact and social innovation worlds. Um, and ultimately, you know, what, why we exist um, to propel solutions and what's working uh, and hopefully to, you know, be, um, play a small role in driving change. Well, I mean, thank you so much for uh, for for sharing the story of grounds, for sharing your own personal story. The sh- the story is the story of Nation Swell as well. I want to uh, to recommend that uh, that our listeners uh, check out the site. It's got a, uh, some remarkable stories on it, some of which we've discussed today. And uh, we wish you the the best of uh, of, of luck and continued success in, in building out the platform. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.